and welcome back to the studio for another episode of Wet Paint NYC. I'm Paul Sabella and I'm here with fellow artist Michael Serafino. What's up Paul? Thanks for having me. First hey. time. Yeah, great, great uh, having you in the studio and on the podcast. Um, it's been a while. How have you been, man? Busy as all hell, man. Working, yeah. uh, working for an artist, going to grad school, and uh, planning all kinds of good stuff. Okay, yeah, let's tell, tell a little bit more about that. Um, how's, how's, uh, what's it like being in grad school? What are, what are you studying? What are you, what's, what's, uh, what's going on? What's grad school? Grad like? school is crazy. <laughs> um, it's mostly good if you can handle the stress of like having lots of homework every week. It's like literally like I have a, you know, 50 pages of reading about philosophy and history of art and theory and all this stuff that's like you think it's not good and then it just gets in your brain you're like oh actually this stuff is brilliant so like once you get past the hump of tons of reading and getting projected on time you start to see how like it just broadens you know what you can draw on when you're back in the studio so um, along with like the studio life it provides it's just like it's just constant like information coming at you so it's pretty good, it's pretty stressful, especially while working. If I didn't have to work, this would be a dream, because it's just studying art all the time, um, going to classes, learning technical stuff, um, interacting with like brilliant, my professors are all brilliant, each in their own way, just fantastic. Not a week, one of the bunch. And what school um, are you at? Yeah, Brooklyn College. So that's uh, part of the CUNY program, really good deal, that's why I'm there. Um, it's, I'd say it's worth it. Uh, it's a lot, but it's cool. And how deep into the program are you? How long does the program last? I've got six weeks left in my first year, and it's a two-year program. Okay. So I'm, I'm pretty close to the halfway mark, but I'll actually be more than halfway done for all the credits because I'm taking a few extra classes and packing it in. Aha. Overachiever. All right. Oh, it's, it's, great, yeah. <laughs> it's not that fun to be an overachiever. <laughs> yeah. But as you said, you, know, you it seems that you're learning a lot, and even though it's a heck of a lot of work, it sounds like you're still happy to be there. I'm not happy like day to day, but um, every time I finish a chunk of it, I'm like, well, that was worth it. And, and but doesn't that kind of uh, have some parallels to life as an artist? You're not, you know, in some when you're when you're a working artist, you're not always perfectly happy, right? And but it's like, oh, you get over a hump, you get a big piece done or make a big sale, and also, oh, you know what? Maybe maybe it is all worth it. Do you see some similarities there? Uh, it's certainly, you know, the only things that are really good in life are ones you have to struggle for. Like, stuff that's handed to you is never that interesting. Um, like, all the best stuff you have to work hard for, so. Um, it's, yeah, it, I don't want to sugarcoat it, though. Like, mm -hmm. you know, my health has dipped a little bit. I sleep less. <laughs> I'm more stressed. Anxiety is through uh -huh. the roof most days. So it's like, take all that and combine it with, like, I'm literally chasing my dream. It's like, okay, like... Here's the trade-off. Like I'm broke. I have a lot of anxiety. Um, I'm not a guy strained personal relationships. Uh, uh, I'm just like nonstop. I like don't have time to uh, sort of like enjoy the breeze when I'm walking down the street. I'm like thinking about homework. So this but sounds exactly like being an artist. Exactly like being an artist. So you take all that, and it's like okay, like when I'm through, I don't think anything will be as packed as this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe I'm just super naive about that. Maybe it'll just be like this for the next 15 years, but we'll see. We'll see. Hmm. Yeah. And did I hear something about you going to China for school uh, as well? I am. What's that's that right. That's right. Give um, some details. It's tentative, but I'm going for about three weeks, three and a half weeks. Um, I'm working that out right now. 
I uh, got accepted into a study abroad program through school. Um, it's with mostly Brooklyn College, but there'll be other CUNY students there. And I'm going to uh, Beijing, Xi'an, Nanjing, Shanghai, and Suzhou. And uh, most of my time will be in Nanjing, and I'm basically going to be learning Mandarin and studying Chinese art at all those cities. I have like an independent study set up, and I'll be um, just getting full immersion. Just soaking in the culture yeah, kind I mean, of thing. I've been studying a Chinese art class right now, studying like from the Bronze Age all the way up to the end of the dynastic period, the early 1910s. And it's just like, it's just a whole nother like chunk of world history that like I'm just now learning. And it's like, okay, well I've been to the Louvre, I've been to the Met, you know? Like, okay, now it's time to go to like the National Museum in Beijing and like see what else there is. So it's just one of these big, big things that as an artist, it's like, well, let's see how they handled you know, painting mm -hmm. in the last thousand years, two thousand years even. Right, right even more years. for them. Yeah, right? it's yeah. crazy. It's crazy thing so, about China. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really exciting. So um, I'm applying to all kinds of stuff to help pay for it, but uh, it's right. a fairly affordable way to go see another part of the world. So I'm pretty excited. Yeah, is, are you studying any particular type of art over there? Or, you know, are you looking at painting, sculpture, uh, pottery? Certainly painting. Um, my my real interest is expressive brush marks. Mm -hmm. um, in my own work, I'm always trying, I'm not so descriptive as I am expressive with the way I lay the paint down. So I'm always interested in um, who the masters are and like getting the essence of something, not just like, you know, realistically depicting something. So I really want to get into the history of calligraphy and sort of their whole scroll painting tradition where like the landscapes, each element is sort of like grasping, uh, something's essence rather than just sort of rendering it scientifically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that definitely has its own beautiful, unique look when you're capturing just the essence like that, the way they did that, the calligraphy with the brushes and everything, fantastic. And they got to shifting perspective, you know, 500, mm -hmm. 800 years before the Cubists. Just, they literally, if you look at some of those paintings, and stuff will like fade off into like the quote unquote fog and then you like look at another part you're like oh the perspective is shift and you look at another part it's like the perspective is shift there'll be four or five perspectives and that's like sort of like what travel is like where you're just like you know you start at the base of a mountain and you look up and you're like then you're like in the foothills and you're looking across and then you get to the top and you're looking down so that that kind of stuff is like just way old and the rules of perspective in, you know are just fantastically different and super interesting yeah, that'll be interesting for you to see, you know, the uh, differences and similarities and where East meets West, you know, when you're over there catching that in person. Uh, you know, speaking of your work, for those who don't know you, uh, would you describe yourself, uh, I, would, I think you would describe yourself as a painter. Yeah, painter. And, and would, how would you describe your style or the styles that you're working in or some of your influences right now? What do you think? How, how would you um, speak to that? I know that can be a little bit difficult. Yeah, at least, tough. I, at uh, least for me, you know? At this point, I'm uh, mid-30s, and my artistic career has been defined by, like, biannual shifts in style. Like, I haven't held to a style uh, hardly ever. Um, got 18 months to two years before I'm, like, on to something else and uh, always searching for what's true to me. There's a lot of ways that you can lay paint down. A lot of subjects but uh, right now what I'm interested in is like big scenes of tons of people interacting in a way where like the energy is sort of out of control so like my pictures right now are um, 
almost like party scenes with like a little bit of like menace to them or like chaos sort mm. of like out of control groups of people where it's like right on the edge of like almost like being like violent or um like descending into debauchery so i just painted a big wedding picture where like the bride and groom are quite poised and well like well structured and then like by the time you get to the other side of the painting like everyone's drunk and fighting <laughs> um, and that comes from an experience I had. It's going to be titled The Wedding in Phoenicia, which is where uh -huh. we saw uh, Joan Alex's wedding. Yeah. Where like, it rained and it was like in the middle of the ceremony. Uh -huh. They were like, we're not doing this right now. Everyone go to the bar. Yeah. So yes. um, everyone went to the bar and the wedding was like later on when we all got pretty well lubed. Yes, that was, that was a fun <laughs> time. Uh, Alex and Joe are, are other artist friends of ours. Um, and it was a lovely wedding um, and there was a lovely rain shower right in the middle yeah right, uh, right. so that, that's cool that that, 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 that uh inspir that you're taking some inspiration from from the wedding um what in general what led you to uh down this sort of sinister or dark dark tinging of your paintings recently um, Any, anything in particular i'd say there's certainly influence of some of my professors where it's like i was painting more celebratory things where it was like this is the thing i love and i mm -hmm. painted it which is fine but it is a limited perspective. So like the, and this is where sort of grad school gets like, gets in your blood and you can't, you can't ignore it if you're like taking it seriously. Where like the question of like, what is your critical perspective is always asked. Like why, why is this urgent? Why is this, you know, more than just a picture of something? So I, I like looked at a lot of art history and saw like big, you know, big group pictures that were like commissioned by arist aristocratic people who were just like, yeah, I want to do a big wedding picture and make sure Jesus is in the middle. And like, mm -hmm. we just happen to be the people on the wedding. Like, there's a wedding at Cana, a wedding at Cana by Veronese, mm -hmm. which is like a big, big piece in how I think about these pictures. And I just wanted to like skew that a little bit and like take the piss and just be like, oh, what if I did one of these wedding at Cana pictures, but like everyone was like behaving badly. Um, so I'm, so more realistic wedding photo, you know, showing the people the weddings I've been to, so yeah. that sounds a little but, more realistic. But that question of like, what is, you know, how are you twisting like these art historical conventions? Because like I am interested in positioning myself like in these conventions, I'm not particularly original that way. I'm always like, oh, what have like people been doing for 500 years? Like, how can I take that and just sort of twist it into a modern way? Almost like a, I, I think of it almost like, um, like satire or comedy. Just like, oh, how can you just sort of mess with things that are established? Because uh, it gets you started. And then as you're working, you're just like, oh, okay, like, you know, that respectable figure, like twist that one. So he's just like fighting with his wife or, you know, someone's threatening with a punch or, mm -hmm. you know, that person's clearly too drunk. <laughs> um, and then it's like respectable on the other side of the painting. So I kind of think I'm sort of interested in. Very cool, very cool. So where are you painting these days? Do you still have the studio at, the, at your house? Um, do you still have that? I know that you have a studio at school as well. Um, I, yeah, I'm totally moved out of my home. Um, my lovely girlfriend Tara uh, now occupies that studio space. So it's like a nice closet-sized room. Um, she makes sculptures there, so it's great to come home and like be in someone else's art. I truly love that. 
Um, I'm painting. Um, so she's using it as a studio now. Correct. Yes, yeah, she's correct. she's uh, taken over, and I'm so happy for that. Sculpture she, studio, right? Well, she paints, she sculpts, oh, she great. does the does the whole deal. Um, it's funny. She our, our interaction as artists, like she's she has so much more ideas, and I'm so much more like, oh god, I don't know what to do, and I just like <laughs> sling paint on a canvas, like I'll figure it out. Um, but she's very like more top down, technically sound, of course, but just. She, she always has like a good idea. Like I've never, I don't think I've ever had. She has like a good idea and executes. It? I've never had a good idea in my life. <laughs> yeah, Tara Tar knows what's going on. Um, but yeah, my studio is um, Brooklyn College, which is out um, Flatbush is the neighborhood, and uh, it's a, you know, I like it out there. It's just far away. I learned. I learned how to navigate the select bus service, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm putting in an hour, hour and fifteen minutes each way. So we're talking two hours, two and a half hours commute uh, every day, every time I go out there. So it's that's like one of the struggles. Yes, that, that, that is a pain. Um, Mike is actually my neighbor. We both live in the uh, Bed-Stuy part of Brooklyn. Um, so we, so, we, so we, we know about the dirty Brooklyn life, but we try to make ourselves fancy every once in a while. Um, and speaking of, we have a fancy party coming up this weekend that you are putting together as a way to blend, um, you know, actually being able to hang out with friends that you haven't seen for a while while you've been in school and maybe even getting some inspiration, like you're talking about these party scenes, um, people um, looking a certain way. Tell me more about that. Tell me probably what your idea is for this party. Sure. Um, whenever I get a, a rare idea for a painting, I'm always searching for source material. And I don't paint so much for imagination. I really do need something to grab onto to at least get started before things take off and sort of take their own course. So some, when I like, can't afford a model, which is all the time, <laughs> I set up a tripod and my DSLR camera and, and take video. And I actually learned that trick from a fellow artist. Um, her name's uh, Drea Caulfield. I went to a studio visit with her last semester and she was like, oh yeah, don't take reference photos, take reference videos, because it's always the in-between poses that are really, really good. So I started videotaping myself, which is super gnarly, like, because I'll do it nude, I'll do it in ridiculous clothing, and I will do stupid things, like, just in my apartment. Like, I went, like, hiking with all my hiking gear, like, in my apartment the other day. <laughs> just, I set up, like, you know, um, a, a stepladder, a stool, a higher stool, and a table, and, like, got walking sticks, and, like, wow. hiked up it. And like sort of tried to accentuate video, each huh? things and just took, you know, it's like a it's like a one minute and thirty second video, but it's like, oh, the best pose was when I was like straining to like come down a controlled way where like one of my feet is suspended and the other one's like bursting with muscle activity and I've got one walking stick planted and the other one's searching. So it's just this in-between pose that like even if you're taking a ten photo shutter, like it never happens. So it's just this thing of you know, videotaping material, because the videotapes have gotten, the, the video stuff you can get on a digital camera is totally fine to get going. Um, so I took that, and I've been using that a lot, and then I was like, well, I never see my friends, and I'm working on party paintings. Like, I should throw a party and videotape. Like, just set up a tripod, get some lights, do all this stuff. So I'm setting up, um, we're doing it this Saturday with, uh, again, Alex and Joe are coming in, coming in hard uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, for some of my paintings this semester. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm throwing a party, getting some masks. I got my friends to 
get some fancy clothes or some costumes, whatever. My brother's gonna bring some masks. Cool. And we're gonna just get weird and just do weird stuff. And I'm gonna bring some source material where it's like, hey, look through this. And I'm gonna get some of my friends to be like, just go in front of the camera right there and like act crazy or like, you know, uh, just do some weird stuff. And I have some sort of prompts that I'm gonna give people because they're not, not, nobody's actors. But most people just would love to be in a painting. So I think, um, I think it'll work out all right. It'll be definitely a little weird. So this will give you some inspiration for at least the painting. Or not something. just inspiration, actual source material. Source I expect material, people's right, likenesses right, right. to make it into some of the paintings. I want to make two or three out of it maybe and possibly edit it, some of the material, into like a short video. Just be like, oh, look, here, like, here's the evolution of a party where like people show up dressed real nice and then like by the end, like, you know, there's a table, ties get a little table loose. stuff. No, I, guess I, I, I want to convince people to just like take their take some clothes off and uh -huh. like do crazy stuff. Like I don't know, like I'm I'm crazy when it comes to that kind of thing. So it's just like I love that um, sort of like devolving scene where like everyone shows up real proper and like by the end it's just like just like Bacchanalian human behavior. Mm -hmm. It's a good time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. So how did you get into painting? When did you first, you know, start painting? I guess you can answer it as either when did you when yeah. when did you first start painting or when did you first become like decide to become an artist? Um, yeah. those are definitely different questions. I've been painting like more or less. I'd say I've been drawing as long as I can remember. Um, got two older brothers who were just, you know, when you're five and they're seven and nine or seven and ten, it's like oh my god, they can draw so well. So I was always like sort of chasing them a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I turned out better. <laughs> no, that's not true. Actually, one of them's a published author, um, so that's cool. Um, but I sort of been making art forever, just drawing little scenes. I drew like weird little pictures. Of, uh, the one that always pops into my mind is um, a dwarf, like a like a classic like fairy tale like dwarf with like a hat, like David the Gnome. With like a cute smile and his hands behind his back and like peeking out from behind his back is like axes and guns and swords and like a mace. And how old were you approximately? I don't know. It must have been like I don't know, like what young elementary school. Okay. Like late let's call it late elementary school. And I've looked through some of the things and like some of them are like decent and there's like twenty of them. And it's like, well, I really like this motif, and it's just one of the early ones So who kept them? You or mom? Uh, oh, uh, sketch pads have always been kept in our house. Like, we've always had sketch pads um, and just bundle them up and keep them. And I go through them every now and then because it's fun to see. Like, like yeah, I really have been interested in a few things for a long time. So transfer that. Like going into middle school and high school, like some like some early teachers saw that I could paint, draw, whole deal, um, and they were just like, "You really should try oil paint." Shout out to Miss Reynolds. If she ever hears this, I don't think she ever will, but Karen Reynolds, big influence in my early life. She's not a high school art teacher. High school, okay. Deeply, deeply indebted to her. Um, introduced me to oil paint. And the first oil painting I made, like... Um, Changed your life? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know, I can say that. It did for me. But, um, Mine did. It was so dumb. It was just like a picture of like a tree in autumn like in a forest with like the light. I, I still have, it's fine, it's totally fine painting. And um, I just got like a lot of acclaim for it. So like all the pats on the back certainly helped me head to where I was. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that one like got me into a few competitions in high school um, that were like statewide kind of things where it was like, hey, go drop this painting off the 
congressman's office. I was like, <laughs> what? Um, that's crazy. Like, I look back, I totally forgot about that. Got a speeding ticket on the way home, I just remember. Um, but, well, part of the so, story. like, a lot of pats on the back when I was young, was like, you can do this. Like, girls liked me, and that's cool. Like, no problem there. Um, and then, basically, I, I, I had a dual passion. Um, I still love studying science, physics in particular, um, which is fascinating. So I went to a school uh, upstate New York, just liberal arts school, studied science and art at the same time. And when I was like 19, I like made sort of a fateful decision that it was like, no, nah, I'm gonna go do the art thing. Um, and I still think about that a lot, and I just did it. I, I, I applied to SBA, got in, got a scholarship. I probably couldn't have gone if I hadn't gotten a scholarship. Um, SBA is the School of Visual Arts here in New Yeah, York. in Manhattan. That's right. It's a long, like, it's a great art school, absolutely terrific art school. So I did undergrad there, uh, did well, um, and I just sort of naively came out of there thinking like, hey, a couple of years I'll be like, I'll be making it, I'll, I'll be fine, and then, you know, I'm, <laughs> so I, was, I graduated in 08, so it's 2019, so I'm 11 years out, and it's like, okay, we're, like, I get what this, I get what this is now, and it's like, it's, a long like, game. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's just like an accumulation of um, relationships and privilege and talent and money. Like you, you've got to, you just got to have a whole bunch of things going for you to make it work. Um, and hopefully, the reason I went to grad school is like just tag one more of those pieces. Um, I'm certain I certainly have the advantages of like I've worked for an artist for a long time, so like I don't have to do a nine to five job. I work between two and four days a week. And what are you doing, artist? I'm uh, helping helping uh, make the art. So like I'm in production. Um, so you get to actually practice some of your at least technical skills at your day job. To for some sure. Degree. For sure. I have a brush in my hand 85 percent of the time. Oh great! So that certainly helps with like muscle memory and that kind of thing. Huh? You know, you know what? If we're gonna let's get real deep into the stuff here. So What's happening when you're painting is the, all the stuff you can't see between the brush and the canvas. So when you put a brush to the canvas. The part you're painting is invisible as you're doing it. Mm -hmm. So like you need to be able to just see in your mind's eye what is happening like in between the canvas and the brush. And it's just not it's not visible. So you're always like dragging or dabbing or splashing or whatever it is, there's this level of remove where you have to like build a confidence that you know is what is gonna happen. Oh, like, yeah, almost like a, almost like building a faith and knowing what's going to happen that the next instant is going to break. I quibble, quibble with the word faith, but it's um, it's a learned sort of attitude of like, oh, here's what happens when you drag one color through another one. Here's what happens when you know you're trying to edge a line and like you need to drag the brush in such a way that you get like thick paint all the way up to the line, so you're just like building a confidence of like, this is how it's going to happen now. And you just do it enough times that it just, it just starts to happen, you just get control, or you just get past that eventually, where it's like, okay, I got the control, and it's like, well, what's the idea? What am I building? And that's really the biggest thing, once you have the, the paintbrush skill, is like, what's, what's, the, like, what's driving all this? What do you want people to get? So like, everything has to go towards that eventually. Very cool. And so you, so you are getting to, you, you still get some of that feeling even though you're working for another artist. Oh, for sure. The, it, uh, the way we work, it's a little more planned. Um, so like I'm accomplishing a set task. You know, it's like this shape needs to be green, this shape needs to be white. 
you know, make it happen. Like, no, like, 100%, I, I got that. Um, but uh, with my own work, it's very much still, um, sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I'll just work with green, maybe I'll just work with white, and like, I don't really have the idea yet, which is the big challenge, I think. I think that comes with age, I think that comes with um, greater influence from other subjects. I actually think um, artists, like, it's just so crucial to think about other things that aren't painting, that aren't art, and then you sort of get them into your work. Um, so for me, the biggest challenge now is how do I get all this stuff I'm interested in, like, into the work in a way that's not, like, illustrative. I don't mean that in a demeaning way to illustrators who are fantastic at what they do, but, like, I think painting needs to be more, like, evocative and not so easy to pin down. So, like, how do you get, you know, what I'm picking. So right now, I'm working with, like, the energy of a party, right? So it's like, how do I get the energy of a party more than just the gesture of, like, line and figure, but it's like, how do I arrange everything in such a way that it's like, I get that there's this, like, balance where there's, like, a tension with, like, once there's enough people in a room, there's an out-of-control aspect to it. So I'm, like, always trying to find the idea into what I want to do anyway, and then bringing it a step or two further. Yeah, and since you, you were saying that um, currently you're working uh, basically uh, around the theme of parties and those sort of ideas, I know in the past you've worked, and you mentioned this a little earlier, um, with a lot of like scientific themes, whether it's space or um, um, you know physics, that can, you know astronomy, that kind of thing. Um, what can you tell us a little bit more about that? I know you I, one really fun painting. I, um, I believe it was inspired by when Elon Musk launched the uh, Tesla into space, right? You did one of those, right? Uh, yeah, how could, I, how could I not be? Uh, I mean, that, mo that moment was like instant iconography. Yes. So I was like, oh, let me yeah. I just got to make one of these. So I did, and you uh, did it. I did a Tesla above. I think that night I was like, oh, I'm going to make one of these. And I think it was an ink, ink and watercolor on, on watercolor paper. Just, you know, fascinated by getting things to orbit and what orbit is like. Uh, it's such a terrific, like, all the rules are not the same up there, and the way things go are just so fascinating. Um, and I could go on at length, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off just a wee bit, even though you're encouraging me. Um, like, okay, fun, fun digression. Yes. If, if, in orbit, if you want to speed up, like, it, it doesn't even make sense to say, like, go faster or go slower. It's like, if you want to go higher, you speed up, and if you want to go lower, you slow down. But when you're in a higher orbit, you're technically going slower, and when you're in a lower orbit, you're technically going faster. So if you like hit the brakes in space, you actually drop to a lower orbit, but your speed increases. So it's like literally, if you want to slow down, you have to speed up, and if you want to speed up, you have to slow down. And it's just like all the quirky stuff where it's like, this is so cool, and like yeah, traveling, traveling like between like, he like bodies in the heavens, it's just this endlessly fascinating game of like, you know, catching the right route that you arrive when something else arrives and you're like escaping one gravity well and dropping into another. So I just think about this stuff all the time. I made a bunch of um, sort of experimental paintings about subjects like this, um, including like the, yeah, the Tesla in space. It's just like, you know, you get a red car and like orbiting a blue marble and it's Electric like, it's just yeah. beautiful. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so beautiful. 
Um, although it got there on you know classic rocket fuel, which is explosive chemical reaction, so it's not super electric when it's not there. But, um, so I did. I made a lot of work about um, sort of like how kind of beautiful and strange celestial bodies are, and I sort of kind of worked with um, ideas around how life could travel between planets, not necessarily like creation of life, but like um, there's an idea called panspermia mm -hmm. where like a comet would smash into a, like a body, um, meaning a planet, and like splash life off and then some version of it could survive a long frozen journey through space and then crash and survive again on another planet and like sort of seed planets, and this is a theory about how life could have spread yeah, uh, throughout the solar system, and like, there's like really clear examples of how if we ever find life on Mars, or say, um, the moons around Jupiter, um, like if they have DNA at all, which is like the only version of life that we know, you just know that that panspermia thing, that like life splashes around would be true. And if you find versions of life that bear no resemblance to like the DNA structure, you would know that that isn't true. So it's really falsifiable. But um, that sort of idea is like great. It's like, you know, take a hostile environment, you know, populate it with some sort of like colorful life thing. And it's like these pictures just drop out when you're really interested in it. Yeah, and we already know um, that even here on Earth there are organisms that we know about, such as tardigrades, that can survive. Like. Some of these extreme yeah. environments. You know, you know their nickname, the water bear. Water bear. Yeah, I love that. Tardigrades are beautiful. Yeah. Um, super strange. But it's like anytime you want inspiration, like go deep into science, go deep into biology, go deep into chemistry, um, and like there's just the invention of nature. I believe is like always, 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 always greater than the invention of man because like your imagination is never as good as evolution is. So like it's just if you want shapes. If you want, yeah, if you want shapes, go look at, you know, uh, snow crystals. Go look at um, sort of like, um, sort of the deep microscopic techniques people have for looking at chemicals. Um, forgetting the word, but it's like, essentially they like shoot single electrons or single photons at like objects to like discover what shape they are without manipulating them too much. So it's like the imagination of nature is just superior by orders of magnitude then you can just like make up even by like just doodling in your notebook on the subway like always 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 look at you know something you're interested in and go real deep and find out you know what's the color what's the shape what's the meaning what's the story here yeah a little earlier you were saying that um, a lot of times you just sort of splash paint on canvas and try to figure it out from there, but it sounds like that's not always the case because uh, when you were inspired by, say, uh, the, the uh, launch of the car into, you know, into orbit by Elon Musk, um, that night, you know, you took that idea and you went right into it and created a piece. So um, maybe sometimes you are waiting for this, this, this uh, flash of inspiration and other times you're trying to coax it out of the canvas. What do you think about that idea? I'm, uh, I'm never waiting. I'm always working. I'm always reading. I'm always searching for things. Um, I would say more influential than, say, iconic pop moments, and I call that like a popular culture moment. Mm -hmm. Although it was astounding technically, like just really, really cool technical achievement. Yeah. 
Um, getting into orbit is like so underrated. So <laughs> again, I can just go on a tangent about like how freaking hard it is to get through, you know, 60 miles of, of atmosphere, you know, and then head sideways seven miles a second just so you can stay up there because like space is closer than Philadelphia. But stay there, you gotta like, you know, cross a football field ten times faster than a rifle bullet would. So it's like it's just unfreaking believable. I lost my train of thought. So getting back to never work, 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 never waiting. I would say the the thing I'd point to that I did that I think is replicable is I found a passion and sort of got deep into it and found um, citizen science categorization efforts where it was like um, I'm blanking on the name, but I'll describe it well enough and hopefully I can put something in the show notes as people say. I was like getting deep into like categorizing galaxies of just like, oh, is this a cigar shape, spiral shape, uh, irregular shape? And I did a lot of that, um, thousands of them. It was very easy to collect. It was like they train you in like five minutes. It's not actually hard at all, but it's like if you get a hundred people telling you this is a spiral galaxy and like five people clicked wrong or idiots, like it was like, no, a hundred people said it's a spiral galaxy. Like this can reliably be categorized as a spiral galaxy. So this project would send you um, just tons and tons of stuff. You like log in, you get a good, um, you get you know, you sort of get not verified, but just like your reputation builds about how much you categorize and how many things you looked at, what your accuracy level is, and they use this stuff for research. So like I did a Are bunch you look of at these things in in the sky. So well, it's on it's all via internet, right? So okay. Yeah. So it's all pictures online. Um, geez, I really wish I had the name right now. I'm, I'm blanking because I have to talk. Um, what is it? What is it? Hmm. Anyway, so I like spent a long time like looking at different nebula, different galaxies. Nebulas where stars are born. So it was like, you know, do you see? There was a famous example of like, um, do you see any green balls in these nebulas? And like, it turned out that these green balls were like, sort of a particular version of star birth that had been categorized and like a decent scientific paper had been established via these citizen science projects that you can kind of sign in and do. And there are all kinds of them. You can like study um, the lines of ice. Um, I'll get it to you. I'll get it to you. Well, lines of ice. This. Yeah, so like you can like study Mars for like the lines of ice coming off like dunes and stuff like that. Hmm. The whole point is I did a whole bunch of this and just got acquainted with the vocabulary of what this like visual system looks like and that this is like legit science that's based on visual information and I was like oh cool I love being involved with this and I made a ton of work based on all this like visual information I'd like gone through for just for fun mostly for like months like I just did I, I did the you know, I wouldn't call it work. It's quite easy and it's just relaxing. I'm just like, you know, what's the shape of this? Do you see any nebula stuff here? Um, and I did all that. It was just, just a way to relax. And then, you know, months down the road, I'm like, well, I should make a body of work about this. So I made these burn paintings. Um, I was going to ask you about that because I know that from what I saw, a lot of these uh, sort of space and uh, astronomy type paintings incorporated some of your burn work. Um, sometimes mixed with oil paint. Can you tell us a little bit about that process, the burn process? Yeah, you bet. Um, I guess the first thing is just to be like truthful about it, that like the burn process was like, oh, this is cool. Like I didn't 
Pyromania. <laughs> is that what we're talking I about here? Is that what we're talking about here? <laughs> I haven't been setting these on fire for some time. Um, it's just cool to burn to burn art. To like, I mean, I I, I want to express it in a way that's not um, sort of like theoretical because I like built theoretical constructions around it afterwards. But like essentially, like I took a blowtorch, propane blowtorch, lit it, made drawings with it. Right, and I did many different on versions canvas, of it right? on canvas, on paper, oh. thick paper. Turns out you cannot do it on thin paper. <laughs> shocker! I, shocker! Yeah, shocker! Thin paper lights on fire real fast, <laughs> and if you're shooting propane gas at it, once the once it's lit, it actually um, it accelerates the the reaction fairly quickly. Um, I learned that real early on. I was still at SBA when I learned that, like, oh wow, this does not work on thin paper. I remember stomping a piece out, like, God, I remember it wasn't dark out yet. I was like, whoa, it should be dark out while I'm fucking up like this. <laughs> um, but I never did it on thin paper. Fucking up in the daytime. And eventually I figured out thick paper works great, like thick watercolor paper, thick drawing paper, like, you know, it needs to be like 180, uh, 180 grams is pretty good, 300 is much, much better, it's just good control. <clears throat> but um, I eventually like figured it out, and then I figured out the next important safety thing. Gotta get this out of here. Um, burning propane creates carbon monoxide, and like even a standard mask will not take care of things. Um, so I run into a few problems. Like you're talking about like a respirator mask. That's not good enough. Right. Right. Yeah, it's not good enough. Okay. What you need is serious ventilation, and then. I've never had the right type of mask. You essentially like the only way to really do it safely, which I've never done, is to have like <laughs> a, like a separate oxygen source. Um, so I just always do it like outside with a respirator mask to avoid the burn, uh, sort of soot and all that stuff. But uh, carbon monoxide is a tiny molecule, and it will get through any kind of filter, almost any kind of filter. Um, so there's really no safe way to do it other than being like outside. You know, the same conditions you would like spray paint in is like more or less how I would consider it. So I did a bunch of that uh, SVA, always burning just like because it was like, oh cool, you can like fuck stuff up, you know, like. But then it still looks cool because the patterns that you create, they're these sort of brown, um, like organic. They can it can be waves or blotches or splotches, you know, depending on. I'm sure it took you time to, uh, you know, and probably a lot of experimentation to figure out exactly how to create, you know, a darker brown before it actually burns all the way through, say, or to, you know, make like gradients and gradations and that kind of thing. Right out. Um, pretty important that time timing is just everything. Um, if you hold blowtorch over a piece of canvas for, uh, you know, one second, it's on fire. But if it's 0.8 seconds, you've got a perfect line. <laughs> so you just learn timing really well, and it's like not too fast, not too slow. And like, the not too slow is like things burst into flames, and the not too fast is like nothing happens. So like you're really like between nothing happens and burst into flames. It's like a really cool place to be, because it shuts your mind down. You're just like, okay, I have to do the thing, and your, your mind is just all about create the line, create the shape, do whatever. Um, and secondly, I, I'd say that the thing that I, I'm not saying I invented it, but I'm saying I used it effectively was laying canvas, stretch canvas very often, horizontally, and then spraying it and painting particular dots with water. So like I would just carefully arrange the water on a blank canvas, sometimes with a 
drawing, sometimes just organically with a spray ball or setting up a drip above it so it would splash. Um, and then with that water beaded on a taut canvas, I'd blowtorch the edges of the water and just like sort of burn the whole thing. And the image of the water would be like imposed with burns across the canvas. And this was sort of like, you know, sort of patting myself on the back. It was like a breakthrough. Uh, and I made a ton of work like this. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe like, let's say, 250 pieces. Oh, wow. I didn't realize um, it was that. Well, yeah, I got, I got 80 of them up at 6.30 flush. That's right. right. I always want to see them. You want to check them that's out. That's a good point. Let's say, let's say I made 200 of them. Um, so I did this beaded water technique on horizontally laid canvas and just did a ton of things. Because if you imagine drawing with a spray bottle, um, imagine, you know, imagine there was ink in the spray bottle and you sprayed it on there. Your drawing would be ink. But imagine it's just water and what you're now getting is the negative space. Yeah, I was going to say the water creates a negative space, right? Yeah, and where exactly. the water isn't, the canvas gets burned to some degree. That's right, that's right. So I did a ton of work based on that, like, you know, astronomical themes. Um, and it's all, like, I, I kind of want to lean off being too theoretical. I just, um, it was what I was interested in and the technique I was interested in. And I found a way to more or less make it work. And uh, did some work, sold some work. Um, did more than I sold, let's be honest. Uh, but, like, had some good response and sort of, like, read what the What telling you is that there are still some <laughs> available works uh, available for purchase. Just make note of that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but this is a good example, actually, of how, like, I did something that was, like, pretty cool. People liked it. Mm -hmm. Showed a lot. Went in a bunch of group shows. I, I arranged one of my own solo shows around this type of work. And it was cool. This was around uh, 2015 um, via some connections relating to the old Pfizer manufacturing building on 630 Flushing. I like arranged a solo show there, had a big crowd for a couple nights. How did you, decide, how did you decide on that space specifically? Because it's, it's a huge building. Gigantic. It's right. a gigantic building out here in Brooklyn that at one point was uh, Pfizer's, uh, I, I believe they still, it set up where they were actually doing like, were they doing chemical manufacturing there at some point or um, that kind of thing? And, and it's now basically rental space, am I correct? Yeah, they were doing, uh, Pfizer manufacturing a ton of stuff there. It's actually like FDA graded, which is, you know, it's funny. Right, right. Like food and drugs, like, it's graded for food and drug production. So now it's all like full of like food startups in Brooklyn. I so like, there's a ton of people making like hot sauce, kimchi. You know, I knew a friend doing a drive change, which is um, employing um, people who have uh, gotten out of prison in the food industry to give them opportunities, so like that Very is cool. space, and then a shout out to uh, Drive Change NYC, um, and, and Jared, uh, really cool stuff there. Um, so it was just this giant space, and it just, it's like five floors, and some of the floors are like double size, so it'll be 25 foot high ceiling, so I put mm -hmm. a whole series of paintings in there, and they're still there, they've been there for about five years. Um, it was just a really cool opportunity to sort of cap off this series I'd made. Um, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens. How'd you find that space? How'd you end up there? Random link up where, yeah, this is the stuff you like can't be like, this is how you do it. It's like, no, like it's always got to be. But this is how it happens. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, a random friend, like, so it, was, so it was a friend who was dating somebody, and the person they were dating 
was like, oh, this person has a contact, and they gave me that contact, and this person reached out to me, and I was like, well, okay, cool. And they were like, actually, I'm leaving this. I'm going to hand you off to the next person. And I was like, whoa, I'm pretty far removed at this point. And they looked at my work, and they were like, we're totally into it. And I was like, okay, can you still do this? And they were like, no, we can still do your show. And I was like, well, okay, here we go. So I bought five cases of beer and put a show on. Um, it was a good show. It was a good I show. Yeah, 2015 and 630 flushing, like, I, you know, it was my first big solo show. Um, no, I, I put it on myself. I didn't you know? realize that. So that was like my like coming. Well, not, I mean, it was just you know Brooklyn solo show. I sold a couple pieces to friends. Um, it was good. The work's still up too. They were like, I talked to the owner of the building, and they were like, Yeah, we're fine with all your stuff still here. And I was like, That's awesome. How long do you think it'll be fine? They were like, Indefinitely. Okay, let's do it. It's like you know, it's like good storage at this point. You know, it's yeah. like, like a hundred yeah. works up there. So, which, yeah. which for some people listening, they may not be fully aware of quite how valuable storage is in New York <laughs> City. Um, storage is worth more than its weight in gold, literally. Um, I can tell you that as somebody who has a storage unit, uh, has had a storage unit in Chelsea for the last few years just filled with art, um, it's, it's uh, worth, uh, it costs more than its weight in gold, that's for sure. So, um, so anywhere that you can, um, especially in New York, if you can store your art while sharing it with the public, that's a win-win situation. Oh, let's do a let's do a fun side note there. I um, had some. There's a bunch of like film production in that building, and someone came to me and was like, um, yes. you know, do you want to have your work in an HBO show? And it was like, yes, of course. <laughs> and they were like, we will rent your work for. I think it was. Um, two works for $200 a piece. It was like $400. And I was like, yeah, do I have to do anything? They're like, no, we'll pick it up. We have art handlers. We'll pack it, use it, and return it to exactly where it was. And I was like, yes, this is an acceptable situation. But they sent me a $400 check and like, you know, tax information later on. And we're just like, yeah, cool. I, you I, mean, I didn't even know yet. But it just happened to be because I was in a big building and it was uh, the show. I looked for it. It was barely, 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 barely in the background of um, Mozart's Jungle in one episode. Yeah. But I wasn't really the there. truth, yeah. funny, funny side note, I was barely, barely, barely in the background of an episode of Mozart in the Jungle. So, yeah. we have that shared in common as well. <laughs> um, you know, as Mike was getting at, there are uh, sort of innumerable op uh, opportunities available to artists, um, different ways of sharing your work, different, different ways of capitalizing on your work. Um, one of those is renting to film and television. Um, it's a very interesting thing. You watch some of these sort of like, uh, like House Hunters International or any of these other sort of, you know, sort of reality television type things, and a lot of times you'll see art in the background that's blurred out because they didn't get the, um, they didn't get the okay from the artist, um, and they don't want to violate, you know, copyright and that kind of thing. So uh, it's actually sort of a big deal in film to get the rights to artwork and that kind of thing. And so if you can rent a piece of art out, you don't even have to sell it. You rent it out. Uh, you get the check. The art is still there to be sold, and it's essentially advertising that you're paid to get because you know you can say, hey, it was in you know the, the background of this. Uh, of this, you know, of this HBO special or whatever. Um, I had sort of a similar experience in that some of my art was up at the Magnesis Townhouse, 
And that caught, uh, and so Magnesis was the precursor to the Fire Festival, yep. the ill-fated Fire Festival. <laughs> and uh, there has since been a uh, Hulu documentary and a Netflix documentary, um, sort of uh, depicting the rise and fall of Billy McFarland and Magnesis and the Fire Festival. And my artwork happens to be featured fairly prominently in both of these documentaries just because it was in the background of all of this debauchery. Um, so in this case, I didn't technically get paid uh, directly for use in the film uh, because of free use, uh, because it was a documentary, but I got a ton of, uh, I, I started getting texts with screenshots from some of our fellow artists, friends yeah. like Brandon. I see him kick back with his multi-colored <laughs> multi socks taking a shot of his big screen, saying, oh, look what I saw. And, you know, the kitty sitting there in the foreground. Uh, you know, a, sort of a beautiful surprise. All press yeah, is press. <laughs> right. As, uh, as Warhol said, just measure it in inches. I think he said that about multiple things. But in this case, we're talking about press. Uh, so how, I'm curious, I, I don't quite remember, how did we meet Mike? I know it was on the art scene, was it through, was it at that Bourbet sort of artist, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, sort of coalition meeting that he put together? Yeah, I believe so, Jason um, Bourbet out in uh, Idaho now, right? Yeah, he, uh, you know, he, well, he, you know, was part of our New York art scene, he helped put together many of us artists, I actually met him of all things through Twitter when I was living in South Carolina. I was in Charleston, South Carolina, and I was experimenting with social media. Um, I was, I was uh, often an early adopter for a lot of these things, um, but I was, I was working with Twitter for many years, and I was like, you know what, this really doesn't seem to be getting me any traction, but I saw that Jason, uh, also um, known as Bourbet, uh, was actually, he was gaining some traction and he was um, getting the word out and it was a rare thing for me to do but I reached out to him and said, hey, I'm going to link up with some of the things that you're doing and see if this whole Twitter thing works for art. And he was very gracious and he said, you know what, do it. And if you ever make it out to New York, let me know, we'll link up. And so about a year and a half later, I ended up in New York, living in New York, never having been here before and invited him out to my first uh, show in, in Manhattan, which was a, uh, a solo show in the Lower East Side at a dive bar. I had no idea where I was. I was, I literally trained in with paintings under my arm, going to this place. I had no idea really where it was or what, it, what, what the value of it was. And did this little, this, this show, this crunchy little thing. And he showed up, he and his wife showed, or um, not wife at the time, but his, his wife, his current wife, wife at this time, um, and they scooped up a piece, and th and that started um, that started this real great relationship where we meet up, drink, discuss art, eat hot wings, and uh, and then go like gallery stomping and, and show hopping and that kind of thing. And it was really great when he uh, brought a lot of us other artists together. There was this sort of Philly contingent, you know this. Um, this, this, uh, you know, everybody, no, nobody except for Joe was a New York native. You know what I'm saying? So everybody was coming from, from somewhere else, and it was just really cool to be put together 
at that time with all with you know everybody had a different style everybody had sort of a different viewpoint and a different sort of uh, you know we were on sort of a similar trajectory but at different points in that trajectory and so that was really cool and so that's as far as you recall that's where we met up huh yeah as far as I know certainly Morbet like a foreign connector foreign entrepreneur just the guy gets it about how you know personal relationships are key um, Fantastically funny gentleman, a uh, great painter as well, and he's living a real good life. I, I follow him and keeping keeping real low touch. I don't see him too much because he's so far away. He's in Idaho. Beautiful wife, beautiful children. <laughs> yeah, Aaron's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's also a collector, um, but just he just had it. He's got the sort of the gift for connecting people, being a connector. And just one of those like great people you meet in life, where it's just like, oh yeah, this guy gets it, and is also like extroverted in just the right way. Um, so it's like it was a blessing to sort of slam in him for a couple of years while he was in New York. Um, some of my closest friends I met because he said, you know, hey, this guy's really cool, and like even like I'm like a jealous, you know, person always guarding my set of friends, all this, but like the people that I first met via him, I was like, who's this guy? You know, what's, what's Paul? Who's this Paul? Who's this Julian? Julian Rath. Like, these are two of my closest friends now. Um, so in some ways, uh, he was able to, like, curate um, people, um, which is, that eh, sounds a little gross, actually, but uh, he, was, he was great at it. He was great at it. It sounds gross, but it worked out for the best. <laughs> um, I met a lot of good friends from, like, a single meeting he set up. He was like, hey, let's, you know, why don't we have a cedar bar a la the abstract expressionist, the New York school, why don't we have that? Um, so we set like a night up and we like literally all sat around drank beers and talked about what painting meant to us. We were all just dyed in the wool romantic painters and uh, I'm friends with everyone that was at that night. I want to say 2010 maybe? 2011? I can't even remember yeah. at this point, yeah. Pretty, like some of those people are my closest friends now. Same here. Very true, same here. You know, and I think one one aspect of that is the simple fact that being a painter is oftentimes a very solitary experience. I spoke about this on the first podcast just very briefly, that when you're creating, for the most part, you're alone. It's not like when you're playing with a band, you know, like a true band, where you're all sort of vibing together at the same time. Um, Usually the only the only chance we get to vibe is when uh, usually the only chance we get to vibe is when we're at a show like after the art has been created uh, after. Um, hey, take it easy. I'll take it yeah, over. Right. <laughs> um, uh, Paul's making life comfortable for us here. Um, there's the sol- There's something about artists that are like you love the solitary, but you can't live an art life without genuine connection. I don't think you can live a real. Um, important life without genuine connection. Mm-hmm. Like, did it with art because, like, you just have to, you don't have to, but I guess if you want a public art life, mm-hmm. you have to embrace the social aspect of it, which is sometimes uncomfortable for people who, like, all they want to do is sit and paint, sit and sculpt, sit and create whatever it is you love to create. And, like, at a certain point, you just have to be like, I made a thing, everybody. Like, come on, check it out. Yeah, look at it. Learn how to be that uncomfortable. And that's one of the things that, um, 
I like wave on. Sometimes I think like, oh, if I was just so good at, you know, selling myself, I'd be good. But it's like, well, really, what I'm good at is being totally alone and dialing in for like six hours or eight hours or whatever. Um, dialing into creativity. Dialing into, dialing into like what I think I know about what looks good and not what like I think other people will like. So there's sort of like this anti-social aspect, I think, to making good work, which is like, screw everyone else, this is really good. And then you sort of put it out there later. Um, and I think that's a big thing. Like, if you really are worried about what everyone thinks, you're screwed. You just absolutely have to go, like, gut-centric. I'm doing what I know is good. I like this subject. I like this aesthetic. I like this color, I like this whatever, and eventually you just have to deal with that, like, you have to push it out there if you want anyone to, like, not agree with you, but, like, sometimes you get people that just are like, yes, you get it, and it's really rare, uh, especially when you're not successful, right? Um, it's like, every now and then, though, you get people that, like, grab you by the arm, like, a little harder than you'd be like, well, this is actually a little harder right here. And you're like, you're, like, this is the thing. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, you might be the only person who feels that way, like I do. And, uh, but then you, you know, hear interviews and read stories about artists who are further in their career where it's like, yeah, it started like that. Where someone grabbed me and was like, yeah, this is it, this is it. But, you know, it starts with just like, you know, I had one person, <laughs> like at grad school, there's this undergrad who I'm, um, who I'm TAing for. I'm like I'm teaching a class. And um, and they were just like, what you're doing? Like, I just love them so much. And I'm like getting critted really badly. <laughs> and it's just like, oh god, like the things I'm doing. It's like, oh, it's just going real bad. And then somebody like literally grabbed my arm and was like, I love this so much. And it's like, cool. Like I don't want. Like I'm trying to act cool. Like I, I, I don't need that. Like it's fine. No, I didn't need that. And it was really cool. Totally. Like, um, I just, I know, it feels good. But it, it happens if you're like true to what what you think because um, like no matter what you think you're not that much different than everybody else like everybody else is dealing with some real gnarly shit and if you can sort of address that gnarly stuff that you're dealing with um, there's like real options for connecting with people you don't know and like the name of the game is sort of like making connections with people that you don't know and that you may never know um, but like if you're like true and honest to, to yourself you'll find that people recognize it because like, man, truth has no, there's like no barrier to where it can go. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you went pretty deep there, but I think what you were describing is, uh, what I see is the two sides of hashtag artist life. <laughs> it's the creative, solitary, you know, the, 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 solid, the solitude that comes with um, creative introspection and the act of actually creating, you know, being one with the moment of that, that thing that isn't faith, according to Mike, it's, it's the knowledge that when you, the, the knowledge of the unseen, when the brush is, is actually on the canvas or on the paper, knowledge of what's happening, um, and that experience, that's, it's just between you and the medium. But then, when you want, but then, once that thing has, has, has been created, if you want to get 
the other side of that artist's life, which is the other people experiencing your work, how does how do you make that happen? You know, there's, how do you how do you make that happen as vastly as possible? And as you touched on, you know, we were saying Bourbet was great at um, knowing the value of network and of human connection. And in the same vein, um, over the last year, Alex, once again, shout out to Alex Alexandria Hodgkins, uh, we. The two of us, um, along with a uh, group called Compass Needle, have put together the Artists in Fellowship program, which is basically, uh, we found five emerging artists and attempted to connect them with um, folks in the art world who are either curators, other artists, gallerists, um, this type of thing, and basically, See what happens, we're, we're forming a little bit of an experiment here. See what happens when artists and other people in the art world take someone else into consideration in their actions. Thinking about, hey, if I help somebody out in, a, in some way that would some way help me, say, um, a curator throwing a bone to an underrepresented artist, um, knowing that hey, that hey, this curator may have just found the newest, hottest thing, you know. So it's it's not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, it can be a win-win situation, um, and that's that's what we are experimenting with. And I think I, I don't know how much of an experiment it really is because you and I have both um, benefited from this. I mean, I can think of when, uh, say, Julian, you know, had the opportunity to. Um, help find artists for a hotel, find artworks for a hotel, right? And that ended up being a nice payday for several of our artist friends because one of our artist friends wasn't so guarded with their connections and this kind of thing that they didn't want to share it. They shared the connections. Art was discovered and art was purchased, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the value of network and also the value of sharing network. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, this is um, this is the post studio work that's essential if you're interested in being an artist that's out in the world. Um, you sort of have to sort of cultivate networks. This is not surprising because this is true of any business, any kind of thing you want to do. Mm -hmm. But it's also like your success is tied up with. Who your friends like are do like who your friends are not in a sense that you choose your friends based on how successful you think they are that's sort of immoral I think but sort of like championing your friends who are terrific and you're just like this person's terrific and if you're just true about that it comes back around a bit and like if you spend time with people who you think are amazing they will do amazing things, and they will be like, I also know an amazing person, and it's you. And you think like, oh, maybe I'm not that amazing, but it's like, I'm not that amazing, oh, whatever. Like, no, you can do it. You can be as amazing as your amazing friends, is sort of how I feel. So I have a few amazing friends who I think are so, so much cooler and so much better at shit than me, but I'm really good at painting. And it's like, well, if I can make a good painting, you know, maybe they will 
like be like, oh, go make amazing paint for this. And like that has happened and I have to learn to be more, it's a mix of being more humble and also more proud. Where it's like, no, I actually can do this, but the humility of like, no, there are a lot of people better than me at um, sort of the business aspects and sort of the connection aspects. So it's like you got to mix humility and pride. Pride in what you do, humility in what you know. If you can sort of cut that balance really good, you know, a lot of it's luck. A lot of it's hard work. A lot of it's capricious in a way that's distressing. But if you grind and grind and grind, at least I believe, you'll get what you want as long as you know what you want and you're grinding with your passion towards sort of a better future for yourself. So grind, grinding with a focus. You know, you're, you're doing all this hard work, but you have, uh, you have an, end, um, an end point in mind. I think that that is certainly beneficial to have an end point in mind so that you have an actual trajectory as opposed to just expending all of this energy. Yeah, I mean, you have to, it, a good question always is, who's your audience? And it's not a good answer to say everybody, because <laughs> that's not true. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's true at all. And saying everyone is my audience is equivalent to saying no one is my audience. Um, I really think you need to know who you want to speak to. And it could be very broad, but you need to be, like, understanding, like, who do I want to reach? Like, it's, you know. If I, like, I'm making party paintings that have like an aspect of like sexiness to it, and it's like, well, if people don't want sexiness in their homes or sexiness, and like, you know, this is not a corporate audience, like where I'm like dealing with like, you know, sort of particular issues around um, like social interactions, where like, you know, attractive allure is a big thing. It's like, well, I know my audience is people who are comfortable with that. Um, so like, you really do need to know who, who is this for? And the more you can answer that question, it actually sort of informs what you want to do. Yeah, and that's kind of what they talk about when they talk about finding your niche and that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's, it's knowing who you want to connect with and then finding a way to actually do that. And that's where that network comes in. That's where the support of other people comes in because the truth is that you can be the most fantastically talented, amazing, creative artist, but if you don't get it out there, nobody will know about it until after you're dead, and somebody else will come into your apartment or your studio, find all that work, and make a mint off of it, and you will have died feeling like a failure, perhaps. If, if, but, you know, if, if that's the struggle that you're going through, that, uh, that's very common, because you know, we're sitting here in a studio um, surrounded by three-quarter finished paintings um, that I've put many, many hours and many uh, dollars worth of materials into. We have gold leaf, oil paint, you know, all this stuff, um, you know, deep dish, as I call them, stretch canvases. None of these things are inexpensive. Um, but if I don't share these with the world, what, what sort of, what is the point outside of my own personal satisfaction? Um, and that brings me to, you know, another sharing uh, sort of point and possibility of things that we did, which was Wet Paint NYC, um, which I, uh, I, I refer to that as a um, evolved gallery experience because 
Mike and I both have had the experience of um, having work in galleries and you know the traditional show and that kind of a thing. Um, but that's somewhat limited uh, in the number of people that can actually physically make it to a space in New York, say, or you know, and, and, and given a certain you know sort of time parameter for a show opening and that kind of a thing. But what we did is uh, we put our art online um, under the uh, you know umbrella of, of what in NYC. Um, with the idea of sharing it multiple ways. One, sharing it digitally, where people can see it, um, both sort of in that traditional online gallery aspect where they can go and see available paintings for sale. Um, and then we also added the aspect for the um, sort of uh, cost-conscious collector uh, of high-quality reproductions on canvas and paper and metal and this kind of a thing. So if you love the image, but you can't necessarily afford the original, you can get a high-quality reproduction that you uh, might be hard-pressed to tell the difference between the two. Um, but then we also offer, uh, we also put together a virtual gallery where folks can walk through and get sort of a, 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 a digital experience of going to one of our gallery shows. So right now we have several of Mike's paintings up on the Webpaint NYC um, virtual gallery platform. And it's literally like you're in a white wall gallery with skylights and marble floor and white walls and you're walking around and you can and you can see the paintings to scale and if you want you can actually walk up to them and uh, purchase them in this sort of video game uh, type experience. Um, and, and, and the idea, as I was saying before, about behind Webpaint NYC was basically just to share the work of artists who I uh, believe in, who I find particularly um, uh, engaging both in, in the artwork that they create and in, the, in their personality and the way that they, that they at least attempt to put it out into the world. And so it's basically great art, great people, um, and I wanted to try to build a platform together with, with my friends um, to share this. Uh, because the art world is evolving and changing very rapidly. I, I think, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, but uh, um, I think that even in the time since we've sort of put our feet into this professionally, we've seen a lot of changes. I mean, art fairs have become sort of the main uh, go-to for art, for major art buying. Um, but I'm, for, from what I'm saying, like that's even changing and that's even shifting. And galleries, like there's a gallery, I believe it's in Tokyo, that now doesn't actually hang the art on the wall. It's all digital projections in a 3D environment. So you're like walking into a Van Gogh painting um, as opposed to walking up to a Van Gogh painting. Uh, so, um, so Wet Paint NYC was just one way for me to try to, you know, get a hook into this sort of digital, uh, mixing the digital with the real world, and that's sort of a crazy thing because uh, a lot of people now are painting in the digital world. You know, you're painting in, uh, you know, on your iPad or whatever. Um, that, you know, arguably, are you painting? I'm not sure. You know, that sets up. They're painting. That's, that's they're a painting. whole different question to get into. But hundred percent, they're painting. But it's a different thing because uh, I, I believe Hockney even had a show where all of the paintings were done on an iPad, and I believe, I assume they were printed out at some point, but that's something that can be done. So it's, They were uh, digitally displayed, they were paintings, digitally displayed paintings. I'm 100%, if you're using a different medium to make paintings, they are paintings. 
I'm, I'm a zealot about this. If you're okay, so even if there's no paint involved, it's still a painting. And I'm not. I I am not necessarily arguing that fact. I'm just pointing out the fact that it, it's it's a whole new world. It's a whole new world, kids. So get get into it. Here's the thing that is seems to be true about the sort of new economy of content related to the people who want it. It is a direct relationship, and um, I'm obviously invested in this. Um, I work with Paul. I love Paul. He's amazing. Um, what we're doing, I think, is developing direct relationships. Like, we're not interested in a mediator, although those work in some respects, because, like, there is a reason galleries exist. They mm -hmm. literally do a terrific job of getting artists to a certain client base and a certain audience, like that's great. It's really important, I think, too, um, because it gets attention for the people who are developing the critical, um, the critical theory, the critical um, at like sort of understanding of how things are fitting into the, the art culture. But there's nothing that could ever, in my opinion, replace direct relationships with the people who are interested in art. Uh, if you want a cool painting, you can get it right now. And there's never been a better opportunity to just be like, I think your work's great. And it's like, cool, I price my stuff aggressively for people who want it, and I can make it work. I can give you, you know, X, Y, Z about how to pay for it, like, you know. I respect my work enough, I'm never going to give it to you so cheap I take a loss, but I'm telling you, if you want this, you can get it. And uh, there's options for prints, and I think a lot about prints. I don't make all my prints available. Frankly, I think works that are sort of iconic work well with prints, but I think that a lot of works that are based, that are like really important, that like the paint quality is like, no, you really can't do this with paint quality. I do not make those available. I think there's only really, you have to buy that. And, you know, I'm not saying it's cheap, but like I've always said, I want to run a career, at least for maybe the next 10 years, on like high hundreds, low thousands. Like, let's talk about money, right? Art costs money. Mm -hmm. So you have to deal with like, well, what do you want to put on your wall? Like, do you care more about like the paint on your wall or do you care more about the painting on your wall? <laughs> and uh, I'm always thinking like, you can, like, people can afford this stuff and I want to know who thinks, you know, they're like, I care about art, but it's like, really, do you? Are you going to spend the money that you work really hard for? Or are you going to spend that money on you know, an artist that you know, like literally know, or is it just like another thing, you know, where it's like, oh, it's too expensive, I don't want it. But it's like, God, I've never had a, I've never had a client say it wasn't worth it. Um, I, I really believe that a good painting on a wall offers so much more than like a Netflix subscription <laughs> or like, you know, whatever it is, just, it, the money is like, it's, it's real and it's higher than you ever want it to be, but it's so important that you actually get and support artists you think are worth it. I think that's a great point, and you know, you were talking about net, Netflix subscriptions, that type of thing. Um, I don't know about you, but I mean, I know that I um, 
offer payment plan. You know, if you want to do an installment thing, if that's what it takes to get something on your wall, that's, it's not about, for me, it's not about getting all of the money right away. As Mike said, things do cost money. We do need to keep the lights on. We do need to buy materials, that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, I think most artists uh, in this day and age would be willing to work with collectors, somebody who is genuinely passionate about their art. You know, they want to see it in that person's collection. Um, or, or on their walls, you know, a lot of folks don't think that they have a collection necessarily. But if you buy one painting, you have a collection, and you are a collector, you know, to whatever degree you want to, to, to whatever degree you want to experience that. Um, how are you on time, Mike? Uh, we, let's go one more question and then finish up. One more question? Yeah, All right. Do you want to ask me a question or, you want, or, or do you want me to ask you a question? No, let's focus on me. <laughs> but of course, why wouldn't we? As we should. Okay, Mike, so where do you see yourself in, about, in a year or so? In a year. Well, I'll just be finishing up the grad school thing, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I would say, I in a year I've set the groundwork for good relationships with people I respect in the gallery world. I am interested in that. I am interested in making money off my art. Um, so I I expect I'll I will pay attention to that. But I would say the most important thing would be I've like screwed something up ten more times. Um, I like run through tons of ideas and tons of iterations of like ways to make a picture. So like I would hope that I'm sort of ten failures further, <laughs> like in the picture making business. <laughs> Um, and I hope that I've found a framework, and this is the word I like now, is framework. Like, I hope in, in a year that I found a framework that sort of allows for endless invention, but also, like, constraint in a way that it's like, you can't do everything all at once. Um, yeah, I really hope that I've found something something like that where it's like yeah here's the bounds within you should be crazy uh, I like crazy I like weird but I need some sort of like barriers like I'm a big hockey fan and hockey is controlled chaos <laughs> they just bound up incredibly talented people in a tiny area and put them on knives skating around 25 miles an hour and it's like that's how I view my heart it's just like god I want to be skating around with a whole bunch of talented people the freaking edge. out uh, <laughs> just sort of like bound energy in sort of a framework that makes sense that's sort of about the energy of people figure painting in art history um, and I hope that I can find something like that that sort of works for me because like you know it won't do in the long term to keep skipping around every two years you actually do have to not settle but find what is real to you, like, and, and sort of develop it for, for like a decade or two decades. Well, that's fantastic. I think that um, one of the things that people may not realize right off the bat when they invest in, in art, 
Um, actually, two things. One, when you invest in art, you're investing in an artist. Uh, if you're purchasing, um, if you're purchasing art by a living artist, you are most likely investing in the f the furthering of that living artist's career while they're still alive. If you purchase artwork by a non-living artist, you are furthering the market value of that particular artist's work. Um, so one thing that people might take into consideration is that if you find somebody who you um, really find inspiring or somehow um, are excited by their work, uh, you know, pushing the envelope, pushing the uh, checkbook a little bit further than you might have initially for something like a Netflix subscription or some other, uh, you know, like a fancy handbag or whatever. Um, it, th this is an opportunity um, for you to actually further another person's um, both uh, life as a human being and also their creative output because, um, as we've been hinting at, you know, none of this stuff is free. Um, so uh, we, you know, we have to purchase oil paints and pastel, you know, pastels and gold leaf and all these kind of things. So basically, the more um, uh, money we have, the more we are able to do this. And um, on that note, where can people find your work, Mike? Uh, best place is to go to www.mikeafino.com. My personal website, plenty of stuff there, but you can find me like with that handle, Mike Afino, on all the social media platforms. Um, I would say at this point, Instagram is probably the best thing where you like you see what, what I'm like doing day to day. Um, it's the most conducive for artists right now. Although I feel that's going to change soon. I, I really do expect uh, change happening to Instagram. I think people have gotten quite tired of it. And the politics around Facebook, owning Instagram, this is super gnarly stuff. Um, I could actually expect a change soon, and I hope it does happen because there's a certain amount of like terrible shit happening. Um, and I do hope Instagram loses its influence, but until then, at Micafino, M-I-K-A-F-I-N-O, I'm a capitalist artist. I have to make my living. Come check it out. He claims to be a capitalist artist. What he means is he could use some sales, as we all could. Um, I can I can verify that Mike is not a true capitalist artist. He is he is actually about the work. He is very much uh, he is very very conscious of what he uh, the amount of energy that he puts into work and what he puts out into the world once that work has been created. Um, so I encourage you to check out MikeAfino.com. MikeAfino, Mike. M-I-K-A-F-I-N-O. And if you're looking for um, prints of his work as well, you can check out WetPaintNYC.com uh, backslash Michael-Serafino. S-E-R-A-F-I-N-O. And with that, I, w I would like to wish you all a lovely evening. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us in the studio. It was a pleasure to speak with you and hear uh, your insights and hear about what you've been up to. Thank you so much, and please reach out if you have any feedback or anything like that. I would love to hear from you, and thanks so much, Paul. Oh, I'm sure they will. All right, Mike. Thanks, everybody. Hey, cool, man.
That was fun. That was great. That was so much fun, man. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Let me make sure I say this real quick. Yeah. Cool. Boom. Boom.